when I first got to the school, and University of Northern Iowa is like in the middle of the state. It's in this town, Cedar Falls. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere a little bit. And and when I got there, I was like, I was worried. The first weekend, I was like looking around, and I was like, I don't see my people, you know. And I was like, I didn't escape, you know. I was ready to get out of my hometown, and I was like, did I just end up someplace even worse? I remember that first weekend, this 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 girl that I went to high school with, it was like, you know, we were friends, but she wasn't, she wasn't like a punk or into any of that stuff. And she was like, Sean, I I think I found some kids that are like your people. They were, they were jumping off a roof uh, of a dorm (laughs) into a dumpster filled with boxes and they had skateboards and they're dressed really weird. And they're like, you know, acting really crazy and stuff. <laughs> and You're like, oh yeah, sounds like my people. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, all right, uh, okay. Hi, this is Jack Callahan, and you are listening to 400 Floor. You just heard Ryan Garbus and Sean Reed, two old friends who shared many projects together, including Wet Hair and Raku Oon. Believe it or not, that's actually how it's pronounced. Coming up in the late 90s Iowa punk scene, the two met in Cedar Falls, eventually moving to Iowa City, where a flourishing experimental music scene developed in the mid-thousands, nourished by their get-in-the-van ethos of touring and show booking, plus their label Night People, which showcased local artists, plus many from their extended network of touring artists that they built up over the years. This episode has been edited from the full conversation, which is available at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. This is 400 Floor. Let's go on and get into it. Hey, nice to see you guys. Thanks for coming on and talking to me today. And um, how about we start with you, Sean? Um, how did you get into music in the first place? And what were your like early experiences with music? Was it through family, through friends? What can you remember about that? Well, I grew up in a small town in Iowa called Muscatine, Iowa. It's a it's a river town on the Mississippi River in the southeast part of the state, near um, the Quad Cities, kind of near Iowa City. Um, and I was, you know, it's it's an obscure, very rural state in a lot of ways. And my hometown was very agricultural, like most of Iowa, and then it was also very industrial. So it kind of had this mix of being a uh, a typical Iowa agricultural town, but also it had a bit of like a Rust Belt um, industrial, lots of factories, sort of working class town. And, um, you know, most of my childhood growing up, music really wasn't a part of it at all. Like my parents weren't very into music. The only thing I really remember listening to actively is my dad had some like Dylan tapes that he he would play. Um and so music really wasn't a part of my life that much um, until I hit my teen years. And like a lot of, you know, I'm 42 now, so this is the 90s um, when I was a, a preteen and a teenager. And in middle school, um, around the seventh, sixth, seventh grade, um, was when, you know, like Nirvana and Green Day and and all these bands started jumping to major labels. And it was like a big deal at the time. I I was kind of like a little bit too young to fully grasp all the minutia of that sort of like the politics of all that and stuff. But that was the, that was the point when I, I like 
when it came on my radar and and became a part of my life. And the the distinct thing I remember is I used to listen to this radio show out of I think it was out of Davenport, out of the Quad Cities, and I would um, I would sit there late at night, you know, when I was supposed to be in bed, and I would try to record songs off this alternative late night radio um, show. It was like a show on a regular radio thing, um, but they would play music that like you usually wouldn't hear on the radio. And I distinctly remember recording off of that a Jawbreaker song from, I believe it was from Dear You, which had just come out at the time. And so like Jawbreaker and Dear You were like, that was like kind of the initial spark of me kind of like turning on to the to the to what would become for me like underground music in general and you know at that same time like there was stuff like like you know green day rancid all of the like the bands of that era that were more like punk bands than like the grunge bands and i was more attracted to the punk bands um and so that was like the initial spark for me. But I think too, what was interesting is like, I had grown up with like a real sense of like this, you know, the 1960s and 70s, like counterculture, political, like anti-establishment politics stuff, like left politics through my, through my parents, through my dad. Um, and so that I think too was like this point where, like I could start identifying things in contemporary music that I could relate back to this, like, you know, essentially these historical, like political movements and things that I had been interested in as a kid, as a, as a kid, weirdly. And like, even though I was growing up in a place at the same time, and I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade at it, but like the, the time I grew up in and where I grew up is such a, like, it's like kind of a cultural wasteland in a lot of ways, because it's like, the way I feel like I absorbed culture was through like library books or like television or movies or like whatever you could distill down from like this sort of like small town strip mall. There's, you know, the evangelical, there's like an evangelical church in town that was like in like an old supermarket, you know, or whatever. But I think too is like my mom you know, always took me and my brother to the library. And that was like a place where, you know, I would just wander around like looking whatever I looked at. So I was just kind of like a nerd with like history and like, you know, my dad's stories about the 60s and like he grew up in the small town in Iowa, but then in the same Muscatine, but then he moved to the uh, to Tucson, Arizona, went to college in order to avoid going to Vietnam, like just had a lot of adventures and a lot of wild times. And like I was, he, he told me a good amount of stories from those times. So there, I think in the back of my head, there was this, you know, there was this kind of like, you know, in a way, like a mythology that was like brewing. And I was like interested in these things and had this kind of like moral background towards like the left wing stuff but like when i discovered punk i i could sort of instantly relate to to it in that there was this like through line or it was like in my imagination it was some new version of that and so as that extrapolated out like with whatever i got into initially like the stuff that was easier to find whether it be you know you you know you go from jawbreaker and rancid to like lookout records and then you're 
and then you're one step, you're like two steps away from Discord or Vermiform or Gravity or like, you know, all these things I got into. So like, really, like once I got into it, it just like, as far as the 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 digging and the collecting and the mail order catalogs and the zines and all that, it just exploded for me. And that's also probably like a personality thing. Like, I think I'm still a hardcore collector in a lot of ways. And like, I'm just a, the digging thing and like the networking thing, like the whole DIY platform of that era, like it just, it just quickly built on itself very rapidly. And so that was kind of like, that was the initial thing in my hometown. And, um, and at the same time there was like, there was local gigs with local bands from my small town and it was kind of like percolating at the time. So I remember like, I think it was in the eighth grade. I, our old YMCA would have these like DIY shows and local bands would play. And it was of the era where you might have a band that's more like an indie band that kind of sounds like Weezer or like super chunk or something like that. And then you'd have like more of a punk band and then you'd have like kind of a metal band of that era or like even like a new metal band of that era, like all on the same bill. So like I started going to those local shows pretty much right away around that time. And that kind of, you know, that there's just like, I didn't, I didn't, no one else, I didn't really like, there's just a good group of my friends. We all started to discover this stuff, like sort of at the same time and then got introduced to some older kids that were like a little, had been in it a little bit longer. And then that exposure grew, but really, really it was also just like you, you buy, you buy a record or a CD and you look at the liner notes and you start like, start trying to pick out, you know, cause it's like, we didn't have the internet internet yet really. So it was like, and then, you know, you get the mail order, little mail order catalog that comes with the record and you just, you just check some boxes and like, all right, I'll try these out. And you send it out with your money order and wait for it to come back. And like, you're just taking these risks on music, essentially. We had to imagine so much of it, you know? I mean, if you're growing up in this town in Iowa, like really to go to a record store, we would, we'd have to go to Iowa City, which definitely by the time I got my license at 16, I was driving to shows in the quad cities of the Iowa City all the time, even Des Moines. Like I, I like heavily started going to gigs and my parents were cool with it. Like they were supportive of it. It was also like, I was this, I, I was a straight edge kid. Like I didn't, I didn't really know about straight edge in that era exactly yet. And I would go on to meet a bunch of straight edge kids that were much more like the straight edge hardcore kids of that era. And, but I, I, I just sort of like decided not to drink or do drugs and then discovered straight edge. You know, I was really into Fugazi and minor threat and the discord stuff. So I, I, I always was like a straight edge kid that was more like the Fugazi version of it than the earth crisis version. You know, even though I met a lot of kids that were the Earth Crisis version, and and Ryan Ryan will be able to maybe go into that more because a lot of those kids were from his hometown, but but you know, once I started going to Iowa City and going to the record collector in Iowa City, then and going to gigs at Gabe's in Iowa City, it just it just you know it just kept like rolling on itself and like doubling and tripling and like the stuff I'm being exposed to and the stuff I'm into. And, and sometimes it would just take like meeting a random person. There's this guy, Jason Salick, who is a few years older than me. And he was like this really intense record collector. And I remember meeting him and we started hanging out once our ages were sort of like compatible. Cause that's also a thing when you're like 
13 and you're trying to hang out with an 18-year-old, there's like this huge gap. But by the time by the time you're, I was like 17 and he's 23 or something, it starts to shrink. So like, you know, he was someone, and there's other people too, but like you meet this random person that like just can expose, you know, he just exposed a bunch of us to even more stuff. And so like, that's just kind of how it went in those, in those early days. And, and skateboarding was definitely a part of it too. Like in my mind, skateboarding, and this goes to the imagination where you kind of have to imagine this stuff. It's like, we're all imagining what like punk is and what the history of it is and how all these things connect. And it was sort of like all piecemeal because you couldn't just, I mean, I didn't even have cable TV at home, so I didn't even get to watch like 120 minutes and put it together. Like, you know, and I remember like at some point I saw like some footage of Sonic Youth when I was like in the middle school, which is around the time I discovered Jawbreaker that was like, that also was like, oh, there's something about this band, you know, and like how they dress and like the whole thing. And so, you know, that it just it just grew on itself like that. Um and then, you know, eventually, like, I went on to go to college and end up going to a state school called University of Northern Iowa. And then that's where, like, it just went up a notch and another notch and another notch from, like, people I ended up meeting. So Ryan, like same thing, like what, what's your version of that story? So I grew up in a smaller town closer to where Sean was just talking about where we both went to college. So I'm from Waverly. It's about 9,000 people. Um, yeah, surprisingly though, there was kind of a lot going on. Um, by the time I was in middle school, it was kind of like their older kids around Sean's age already had kind of a fully formed scene to jump into. Um, but before that, um, yeah, I didn't really grow up with too musical of a family. We just kind of like listened to the pop radio or whatever in the car. And then in like fifth grade is kind of the first distinct music memory I have of my friend Matt having Dookie and that just like blew it open. And like he dubbed it on tape for me and like eventually I got my own copy, which I still have. And it's probably like the most played album of my life in full transparency, you know, it's like still good. So I got into that and that kind of just got me really into music and, but I was in fifth grade. So just kind of listened to like the radio moved into, you know, Metallica and your white zombies, that kind of era of stuff until, uh, like, yeah, middle school, a couple of my friends who had older siblings that were into music, they started getting into like Rancid, Descendants, Suicide Machines, and I'd hear that stuff with them, and it just clicked, and it just changed, and I was just all in on that stuff. This is probably going against what's cool, but I liked that like Metallica had like songs, you know what I mean? Whatever appealed to the radio, I was like, yeah, I was a melody guy. 
but uh um that that just kind of kicked it off like i still remember my friend had somehow he had two copies of the suicide machines destruction by definition and i just remember that get even giving me that and it like changed my life over the course of a summer it was like okay we're into skateboarding and ska punk and that's it and that really coincided with the first show that i went to which would have been at the end of eighth grade like i was saying there's a really fully formed local scene that i think had a lot to do with my musical experience um and so all the kids that were like four years older than me had all these cool bands and they were tied in with bands in other towns like Marshalltown, which was like two hours away. And then, um, even with Muscatine where Sean was from, some of those bands would come and play, but yeah, I just the distinct memory of a skate park benefit show in my hometown that just like, there was like ska punk bands, straight up screamo bands, like chuggy hardcore bands. And it just, that opened it up. Like I never looked back. I went to like every single local show I could ever go to, which is still like the main method of music that I've consumed was like small shows. Like I never, it it was a small town. So like I knew people that went to see like Marilyn Manson or something, but it would be like two hours away. Your parents would have to take you. And my parents were really supportive, but like they were in the way that it's, I was the youngest kid and they were just like, we trust you. You can kind of do whatever you want, but they weren't going to drive me to, you know, like Iowa city to see Metallica or something. You know what I mean? So I just never did any of that stuff. Yeah. So that first chunk of time where I was just going to local shows, um, it was all whatever would be, you know, in Waverly, which weirdly there were quite a few shows. Um, and then I was just kind of content with that, you know, skateboarding, going to see the shows, that were local. And then eventually my friend Travis, um, was just like, he was a phenomenal musician, like savant level guitar player. And still that's what he does. But he was just like, we're going to start a band and you're going to play the drums, which I had zero aspiration or skill. And then he just kind of showed, he just kind of showed me and he was like, you just do this like together apart, together apart or whatever, you know? And like, it frustrated him to no end because no one was ever as good at as good as he was at anything. You know what I mean? In any of the bands he was ever in, in high school. So he was just always bummed. Um, so we started a band and it was pretty terrible except for him. Um, and then that just kept going. And then that involved into another high school band that was a ska punk band. And we got to play a bunch of shows and had our licenses and stuff and would drive to like Muscatine or Des Moines which is how I ended up meeting Darren was at a ska show. Our ska bands played together. Amazing. What, and, were, the, what uh, were the bands called? Do you remember? The one I was in was called the ska abortionists. Okay. I was about to say, Darren didn't mention that. I always remembered that name. And I was like, Darren, were you in the ska abortionists? He's like, he, you know, no, my band was driving while stupid. Yep. That and... was his band. <laughs> but he and never mentioned together. that you were in the ska abortionists. He's never mentioned yep. that before. Amazing. So that was like also just our goal was to be not stupid, you know what I mean? But it was like definitely peak trying to be offensive and like shitty. So like I know we got like in trouble at a couple gigs and stuff like that, but you know, we were we were okay, I guess. I don't know. But it was that's how I met Darren and met a bunch of people doing that. Um so and then that kind of eventually 
led to Sean. But I guess I should talk about, he mentioned all the like straight edge hardcore thing. That was crazily huge in my hometown. I, I don't know if it's because there was like a big wrestling contingent and like that sort of crossed over. <laughs> it's like, if you couldn't get more on the nose of like, this is like this culture around this is just like, like wrestling equivalent. Well, yeah, like, and, and, yeah. Back, and background for people who might not be as, as cooked in this stuff in like the nineties. I mean, it started in the late eighties, but in the nineties, especially in the na- late nineties, like there was definitely a connection, a through line bet- from like, you know, straight edge, hardcore, youth youth crew style hardcore, or even metalcore, like chuggy hardcore, and like sort of like like dressing like the caricature of like a jock, like a jo- like the and Letterman like, jackets. You know, like it's or it's like, like so gym, on the nose. Gym shorts with like a huge t shirt, or like the like long khaki shorts and like super long chain wallet with huge totally. gauges. Like, and like headbands, every- <laughs> yeah. Everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the day they turn eighteen, getting straight edge tattoos, like that kind of thing. Like showing up to high school the next day with like just massive X's tattooed on them, which was wild. Uh, but yeah, so that was like just huge. And then there was also, you know, it was like the late nineties, early two thousand. So it was like hyper masculine aggressive hazing culture which tied in really well with the straight edge hardcore scene and then i also think it weirdly tied in with the kind of uh creeping right-wing christian conservatism weirdly because there was also a lot of religious crossover in that scene like even in my hometown where people would be like i'm christian straight edge and into like brutal murderous hardcore with like you know just like hate breed like you couldn't believe how many hate breed shirts were at my high school like just (laughs) on any given day it's like three people are wearing a hate breed shirt and there's like 600 people in the whole school you know what i mean what was weird for me is like you know this is fast forwarding a little bit but when i when i met all the all the people ryan's talking about i was really confused because you know i came from a scene that was like just to be frank was way nerdier and like it was really not very masculine everyone was like it was sort of like about being a nerd and kind of being and and some of my friends and even myself like i played a lot of sports i've always been into playing sports and working out and running and all this stuff but like i never identified with the with that stuff so like to me the punk thing and, and the hardcore thing was way more coming from like the like the Discord, the Fugazi, the like Riot Girl, that side of it. So when I met a lot of those kids, I was just like, "What? You're like Christian?" And like, like to me, I was like really anti-Christian at the time. You know, it was like almost almost to a point where it was like ridiculous. Of well, like, so how, was yeah. our um, yeah caricature totally. version of a ska band called the Ska Abortionists too. You know what yeah. I mean? So <laughs> yeah. well, the other context I would give is that it like was like just after like the Tom Green show and like the emergence of Jackass too, which is like hyper fucked up and masculine and it was like filled with just like antics and like a lot of teasing and hazing kind of culture big time. So like you'd go to school and the people who liked the same music as you, that you were just at the skate park with talking to would still also be like, what's up you punk rock loser. But it's like, we're both into it. 
it was really perplexing at times. It just permeated everything to like, just like, that's what we would do is just go, you would just be like, well, we're going to go fuck with people tonight. You know what I mean? And that was just us emulating the people that were older than us that did the same thing or did it to us. And then, you know, we were younger. So, uh, definitely some of my friends were like, we got to amp it up, you know, get the antics harder, you know, which didn't always pan out real well. No permanent damage, though, hopefully, you know. But. No, uh, not really. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe like, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but then sort of around me playing in that band would be when I started encountering Sean, although I had seen, I would have seen bands he was in play because he would have been in college pretty much already at that point. And the school we both went to was about, 30 minutes from my hometown. So it was pretty close and one of the closer places to go for other shows. So that's kind of where our story probably started to overlap. Like when I was like a junior in high school more or so, I think I started to actually get to know Sean. Yeah, how did how did you guys do you remember your first meeting? Well, I guess I could go into a little bit of the background. Cause really this is like kind of a critical point in that era of music for for like this kind of Iowa thing in general. Is I ended up going to the University of Northern Iowa, which is about two hours from my hometown and 30 minutes from Ryan's hometown. And when I got there, I was like, you know, and I had played in bands in high school, but we'd only played local shows. And like, you know, it was it was pretty like not like overly ambitious yet, you know. Um, and so but I had this group of friends from my hometown and and there was like kind of these little like just this generation of like kids that had all gotten into music at the same time in that era in like the, you know, mid nineties to the late nineties. And, you know, I, I graduated from high school in 99, went away to college. And, um, when I first got to the school and university of Northern Iowa is like in the middle of the state, it's in this town, Cedar Falls, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere a little bit. And, and when I got there, I was like, I was worried the first weekend I was like looking around and I was like, I don't see my people, you know? And I was like, I didn't escape, you know, I was ready to get out of my hometown. And I was like, did I just end up someplace even worse? I remember that first weekend, this, 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 this girl that I went to high school with, it was like, you know, we we're friends, but she wasn't, she wasn't like a punk or into any of that stuff. And she was like, Sean, I, th- I think I found some kids that are like your people. They were they were jumping off a roof uh, of a <laughs> dorm into a dumpster filled with boxes, and they had skateboards, and they're dressed really weird, and they're like, you know, acting really crazy and stuff. <laughs> and You're like, oh yeah, my people. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, all right, uh, okay. And so then it's the first week of class, and I was walking across campus, and I. It, about a, like 50 yards away, I saw I saw this person and we just walked right up to each other because we could just like see each other out of the crowd. You know, it was just like these two, you know, punks basically. 
is, you know, how we identified at the time. And so we walked right up to each other and it was just like, what's up, man? And like, that was this guy, Jeff Eaton, who's still a really good friend of mine. Um, and he was from Marshalltown, Iowa, which also had this like really thriving crop of like kids punk into punk and hardcore into like the underground music of the time. And so, and if this is the same person, he's the lead singer of Modern Life Is War. Yeah, so right? that 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 is part of the story too that evolves. Is like you know he went on to be the singer of this band Modern Life Is War that was really successful, hardcore band. So it was pretty much like once we Jeff and I met, then my friends I came up with from Muscatine like met his friends from Marshalltown and the Waverly people, and then you had we were going to shows pretty much every single weekend somewhere. So you would get to know, like, that's how we got to know Darren. Like he would come to, he would come to like every FSU. I don't know if he came to everyone, but he came to a ton of FSU shows and he would drive up like the two hours from Des Moines in a car with a bunch of other kids on like a weeknight to see some like thrash hardcore band play or a screamo band play or whatever. And so that was like, that was just how it all connected. But it also was interesting because it, it's also what created the diversity and tastes and personalities that would lead certain, you know, Ryan, Darren, Andy Spore and I to go on to do weirder bands that we ended up doing. And like Andy Spore, I mentioned him, he was, he was someone who was a couple years younger than me from my hometown who ended up being sort of rec- recruited to go to the University of Northern Iowa. And so sometimes it's like you were just going, like these kids would just go to college to be around people to be in a band with maybe more than they were going to actually get a degree. Yeah, it was really a special time. And I think that Cedar Falls era, like once we got the FSU house going and started booking gigs, that's that's when we started to really tap in and fully understand the DIY thing, not as something that we just participated in from going to shows and buying stuff from mail orders and things, but from like literally starting to live it as a lifestyle and like where we were bringing in these bands that we were like networking with and it was like, oh, they're doing it, so we have to do it. And it was definitely cooked in the mythology of like, you know, I remember like when we were all like, you know, Henry Rollins getting the van, like things like that were definitely in our zeitgeist. But I think that dialogue really, you know, of of bringing in these touring bands and we're throwing our own DIY shows and then going to lots of them, it just was natural that we just started to form more serious bands where that was the whole goal. I know when Modern Life is War formed it for Jeff, it was like, we're going to go on tour and we're going to like tour as intensely as we can. And we're going to go out and do it. And we're going to put out our own seven inch and we're going to like go all out. For us, it was similar, like Andy Spore, Benji, and I had been in this band Sender Receiver, which was sort of like a a, a band of the era. It was sort of like a post-hardcore, like 
screamy hardcore band with more like you know indie rock leanings just uh, like a band that would be like bands on jade tree or ebullition things like that like that's what we were aspiring to and we that band kind of folded and we needed a drummer and i i just remember like seeing ryan around at gigs and stuff and we all thought that ryan was like the really cool younger kid and we just thought like oh like ryan must be the coolest of all these younger kids and so we're how much younger uh, what uh how much younger are you ryan than than sean four years i'm 85 you were born in 81 yeah yeah okay cool yeah so four years yeah so he was like i was getting towards later college and he's just getting ready to go to college and ryan well it was you're still in high school i was gonna say yeah we were still in high or i was in high school when we started playing in hugs and i do remember meeting you more formally at one of those like you and i high school like screen print days okay yeah. i kind of remember getting to know you there a little more than just seeing you at a show but yeah it's funny to me to remember that concurrently to starting hugs i was still in the scabortionists you know what i mean at the same time which not to not to derail but you mentioned kind of like in high school your ambitions were a little less formalized with bands but like Travis, if you remember, he was like driven. Like we yeah. recorded a couple times, like and put out like CDRs, you know, and played every possible show we could. Like kind of, kind of when I look at it, like a lot more shows than I would expect for being in a small town. You know, like driving all over Iowa and playing a lot of shows for like a two-year period because it really was just I think two years. But it's funny that it overlaps with starting hugs. You know. Yeah, I don't know. Hugs started, yeah, like I, we were saying before, I would have been a senior in high school. And for me, it kind of coincided with being more serious about playing music too. Like I started taking drum lessons finally, because I hadn't, I just, like I mentioned, my friend Travis had shown me how to do that for the specific purpose of each song. He'd be like, here's what you're going to play. And I was, as a senior, kind of like, oh, I actually like this. I'm going to take this more seriously and got a drum set and then that coincided with hugs and so for me meeting sean and all those people going to lots of shows in cedar falls and playing in that band it just like uh fast forwarded everything like it kind of moved me into a different world because i had all these people with more experience that kind of pulled me forward a little faster um and then yeah hugs we did for like two years we recorded a couple times and put out a couple records and did a short tour and a long tour. And then at the end of the long tour, it just kind of seemed like, you know, the music in the van was starting to change a little more and what we were trying to do musically started to not make sense as much with being a hardcore band. And also Benji wasn't as into touring. And so it kind of fizzled out naturally as like everyone's interests started to veer. Cause we'd, started seeing bands like um uh wives or you know things that were like hardcore adjacent but a little bit weirder some of that kind of stuff and being more into load and that just kind of pulled it further out of just wanting to be that hardcore band yeah and that 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 big tour we did was like brutal too because we we had a tire break off like while driving down the driving down the interstate. I mean, a lot of the early tour stuff was pretty, like there was some good shows and we had a good time, but there was also just some like trial by fire, like rough, 
like people touring DIY style without a lot of money and like, you know, driving vehicles that aren't great. And like, so there was this ask, like, I think like we like barely made it back home at the end of that tour. I think that's true. You know, yeah, the door also fell off the van. I remember that we had to the put the tire broke off too, while driving like down sliding. the interstate. And then I remember we drove, we had to like, did we kind of cut the short tour short and we just drove straight back from New York to Iowa city. And then like, it was just it was just brutal. So it was understandable that Benji was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know if this is well, also, maybe I was I'm like good 19, on this. <laughs> so I was like just so down. Like none of yeah, that even rolling with the punches. I was just like this is so sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. This is real, man. It's real. Yeah, exactly. I I also would only eat like apples and shit too cuz I was trying to be weird, I guess. I don't know, but you know, it was like it all yeah, yeah, yeah. it all made sense to me. I was like, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. Well, and I think too something to discuss is like we grew up with this like mythology about touring when we came up. It was like the Rollins getting the van thing. It was like touring is like this like should be kind of this like adventure in like <laughs> in like it was like we were ascetics you know like training ourselves to like starve in the forest or whatever you dude, know <laughs> for real if people don't understand dude jeff jeff and i did this three-week midwest tour like a year ago and it was just like you know jeff can god bless him you know he can he can hem and haw about all this but at the end of the day he's like dude, you got to put your reps in. They don't know what it's like out here. And I'm like, Jeff, you're a fucking veteran of like the torture tour. Of course you love <laughs> Jeff doing this. Might have, of Jeff might have actually done more torture tours than anyone. And he did many with Ryan and I. We're like, we're stranded. We're stranded again. Or are we going to have to hitchhike home? <laughs> yeah, totally. Like day three. We did yeah, another, totally. Ryan and I, and then oftentimes with Jeff, continued to do these like tours that would sometimes just be disasters for like another 10 years or something beyond <laughs> these yeah, hugs tours. Totally. So, but like Ryan was saying, that was the time too. By the time we really got hugs growing, we were like, I feel like Ryan, Andy, and I were all already kind of growing out of it by the time it really got rolling. So, because I, I had this like, you know, I was like this digger and I was constantly like out there just searching kind of like casting my weird net as far as I could in whatever way I could to like try to find things and I remember getting into the loads load record stuff and then getting into like the wolf eyes stuff around you know American tapes Hanson and then black dice beat you know black dice had the connection back to Things like the Boredoms and Black Dice had this connection back to the hardcore stuff, but they had like, you know, Black Dice had come out of that and sort of like, you know, Beaches and Canyons came out. And like, so around that time, all those rec all that stuff was really permeating and sort of bubbling out from deeper in the underground. Like, you know, we, we started to get cued into that. And I started ordering these zines and comics from a, a store and gallery in New York called Little Cakes. And what was really interesting about that was, is that the person who ran it, Hana Fushihara, she had lived and went to school in, in Providence at RISD, and she had come up with all the Fort Thunder people and knew all those people and stuff. And I was ordering a lot of their sort of artwork, self-published DIY zine and comic stuff from her. And she was like, who are you? 
like Cedar Falls, Iowa. How do you know about this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then so we started talking and she was like, oh, you should send me some of your artwork. Like we should, you know, like, and, and then I had also started, I had, I think ordered some records from Load and I had got copies of that, the newsprint um, zine that used to come out that I don't know if I ever found out who exactly was behind it, but it was all those people that were, came out of the Fort Thunder thing, even the direct members of Force Field or Fort Thunder, but people like Chris Forgus and the Paper Rad people. So the Paper Radio, Paper Rodeo, whatever it was called, Zine was like massive to me. Like when I got the first copy of that, I was just blown away and floored by it. I have all the copies. I have them in the archive. So that's something else. Like, I mean, I'm sure other people still have them, but that was the first stuff where it was like taking all this D underground DIY music lifestyle things that we'd become saturated in and then combining it with the art school thing, combining it with this visual art thing. And Force Field had been in the Whitney Biannual and like... There like, was so the like lightning bolt moment too. I don't know if you touched on that. And like the the pervasiveness of that lightning bolt DVD, the power of salad. Yeah, power of salad. Yeah. And that was kind of like it just all tied into like what would eventually be like the tied in, in my mind, like the paper rad stuff too. like going to that website. It, and it obviously has the, you know, Providence connection at times for all those people, but it, it just really all started to pull in that direction. And then I will say there were a couple other earlier weird bands that I think kind of like started tipping us to like even uh, seeing black eyes, I remember seeing them. That had like a big influence. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, we were really into them. Yeah, like I remember yeah. seeing them when I was like a senior. So when we were in hugs, I remember like that stuff. Yeah, pulling it in, pulling me in from like having been so into like like screamo and hardcore and stuff, and then just being like, oh, but like there is something else going on here. Like you know, gotta like look deeper. It just exploded. Like it just all starts to cook together. So really, that moment, like the same time we were discovering like noise music of that era, like in the load and American tapes and all that, we were simultaneously discovering like just all this historical music, and it was just all exploding at the same time. So it was like kind of weird to think back about because it was like pretty overwhelming like the amount of like kind of music we were probably taking in across all these different time frames and genres and it just totally exploded yeah well and that has to do with that beginning of the internet like you know we've kind of spoke about because i went to college in 2003 and it was like the first time i had i mean i had a computer with the internet for a couple of years in high school but like going to college, it was like, you've got the main line, you know, it's actually fast and you've got soul seek and, uh, all music. So I would just go down like the all music recommendation hole. It's like, Oh, you like suicide. You might like this. And then you'd read. Yeah. And just, then I'd just be able to download it. And it really just accelerated hearing everything. It was, it was totally shattering, you know, it was like, yeah, and it was a cru that that was kind of the crucial point where it's like every everyone was getting online like it was the accessibility was becoming more but it wasn't oversaturated yet. So the like and there was kind of like the pre-internet maybe socialization was was still there where it was like the networking could just like flourish. You know, where it was like by the time we started really touring and stuff, it had become a lot easier 
but also like people were more like were still really like the engagement was like still there in a way that I think is different now, you know? So it was just this really distinct moment where you had all these things sort of happening uh, simultaneously. And two, and I, you know, for me, I, I do doubling down on the visual art side of it is like, you know, those of us, like, you know, some of us that were like also art students, I feel like, like for me, I really gravitated towards the direction we're talking about because of its parallels with like visual art as well. Whereas like the hardcore scene and stuff, that wasn't really as much of a thing or it wasn't as developed or it wasn't as like expansive. But when, you know, when we started listening to like Black Dice and looking at the artwork those guys did and the world that they seemed to operate in in New York and stuff, it was like, this is like, this is everything we're like into, you know, all in one place. Because like Ryan and I and, you know, and Andy Spore, like, and I think Darren was very much this person too, is we we were all like really in, like we were interested in like weird movies, we were interested in weird music, we were interested in like weird art and the history of art and stuff. So it was like, that's that was the music that like most represented it. I mean, you know, listening to Wolf Eyes back in the day, it was like, that music was like, I mean, it was like, was so cool about it. It was like so lowbrow and so highbrow all at the same time. And I think that's where we all came from too, because we were like these aspirational, like artists, art student types, art school types. But then we were also like working class, small town people. So when you listen to Wolf Eyes, it's like, this makes sense to us, you know, because it's like, it felt like that's where those dudes were coming from as well. They're just older and like, bigger weirdos than we were you know but like but like they had come out of these like michigan towns and we're like where it's like it sounds like a b movie horror soundtrack but it's also like infused with like listening to free jazz and like the art world or whatever so that just like expanded it all you know well they had some kind of dvd too because i remember like yeah i had it yeah yeah some like videos that they had too that put the visual to it before we ever saw him live and you're like oh yeah this is has a challenging video aesthetic as well you know well and i think we had the mentality too and i think it was probably the mentality of a lot of the music we're talking about is like coming from the art school side of it at least for me i had the ambition or whatever that was like i need to be pushing at the boundaries for myself at least whether I'm going to be able to push at the boundaries of like whatever the larger artistic dialogue is or artistic history is, that remains to be seen. But I, and I still feel like this way, I, I feel like it was necessary to be pushing myself at the borderline of what was comfortable, essentially. Like we had to push ourselves like at the level of failure, like basically, like, you know, and so that, I don't know what that, where that comes from. But that was just like always what I was interested in. And so, you know, thus inform like what we were. But it seemed like part of the music. Like if you listen to, you know, we're listening to like Suicide and then we'd follow it up in the van or something. We're listening to Suicide and then we're listening to Albert Eiler. And then we're, you know, it's like that, a lot of that older stuff that we were like felt was so, or Sun City Girls or something, like we felt like it was like, for its time and what it did, it was it was all like music that was pushing at the boundary of whatever the genre was or whatever the thing was at the time. 
so from here, like, what's the, like, then sequence from this era? Like, I guess, hugs, and then after you're getting into weirder, weirder music, and then... So Raccoon was you 2 Andy Spore, and Darren. So, yeah, the origins of Raccoon. So I ended up graduating, and that... Around the time of that, like, I think the last Hugs tour, I was getting ready to move to Iowa City. Is that right, Ryan? Yep. Yeah, so right when we did that, like, that big tour, like, Andy was already in Iowa City because he had moved to Iowa City to go to film school at the University of Iowa, and I was moving down there to go to graduate school. And, And again, really, I was just sticking around because I had a serious girlfriend at the time who was also in the scene and was a good friend of all of ours. And so to stay with her and also essentially to stay around my friends to play music or whatever, like I ended up choosing to stay in state to go to grad school. And, um, you know, Andy and I ended up in Iowa City together then. And, um, and Darren had moved to Iowa City to go to college. And I remember Darren and I started hanging out a lot and we just started jamming like i think it might have kind of been darren's idea but he was just like let's just jam and like you know play we're not gonna just play guitars or whatever we're just gonna like get stuff and jam like with whatever like junk we can find you know and then andy was around because andy um uh was was dating my roommate at the time and so and Andy was one of my best friends so Andy and I I remember were hanging out and we were hanging out with Darren a lot and Andy and I were basically every day we're watching some like <laughs> because we finally had access to like a library a school library that had like every great film ever made we were also watching like every heavy duty art film and world cinema title from like history <laughs> at the time so yeah we just started jamming you know and like it and it was sort of like aimless originally but then this little house i lived on we were just like jamming in the basement and then it just became clear like you know ryan was living in cedar falls still but it's like yo this is actually turning into something and we have to get ryan into this because like you know he was he was the other you know we're still good friends with him and he was like the one that's like at that point he'd be by that point he'd become a really good drummer and it just, you know, it just made sense to like, you know, get, try to get Ryan down and include him in that. Yeah, I still have the tape. Uh, you guys had recorded a tape of like the, you played like one show, I think, and then gave me a tape of the songs and you're like, hey, figure out parts. And then we just kind of moved from there. I don't even remember that. Yeah. yeah so I have a tape that's just you guys. And I, I always describe that that band too as like, eventually it became four people that were like trying to solo basically almost like four people trying to be the most active voice so it it became (laughs) it became quite an interesting sound at times because well and two the reason it got the goofball name i think there's some things about that band that i think in certain ways don't hold up but then in other ways again are really indicative of the time and indicative of what we were really listening to because i think we were trying to come from a place where we were like we were doing very serious music but we didn't and I think this has come up in other things like where, you know, like like Paper Rad, for example, they were like really serious artists and obviously making something that was really good and like really special for the time. But then there was this sense of humor about it, right? 
And even like boredoms, like if you listen to the boredoms, like they had that element or Sun City Girls, they had that element. Goofy. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of what we were trying to do with Raccoon and the name in the sense of like that this music is like, it's really serious, but it's also like, don't take it too seriously because we also, the way we thought about like essentially appropriation is that like the product of like who we are as people coming from Iowa is like, we're just, we're just the product of like consumerism. Like we're the product of absorbing things through like consumerism essentially. So, you know, whether it's from a library book or from like a movie or whatever, everything is coming to us that we're into through this like kind of mediated thing. A part of it is like we hung out in this, this shitty basement all the time and there was these like active group of raccoons that lived out that side outside that house that we would like see every night like hanging out on the porch <laughs> or whatever so amazing and you know and part of it's like stemming from like you know just like we were kind of trying to like conceptualize that in the band where it's like we have these sounds and we're doing these things and we're supposed to be like quasi mystical or psychedelic or something but then that's also just a joke because it's absurd. And so that's kind of what we were trying to play with in that band. But in this era now, and reasonably so, that's like not really, that like wouldn't make sense now. But at the time, I felt like that was kind of what we were trying to express. So even with the name, it's like this ridiculous kind of dumb name. I think a lot of our old friends thought we were like dumb and our music sucked <laughs> and it's like, what the hell? Or like those guys are so pretentious now <laughs> or like whatever, course, because a lot of the people didn't get it, you know? And, and I think some of them came around to it for sure. But you know, we were doing raccoon and like Jeff and those guys were doing modern life is war. And that's like a big shift. You know, it's like a huge gulf. And so, you know, initially I felt like it was just like the four of us were kind of the scene, you know, but I don't know. What's your reflections on that, Ryan? Yeah, that seems kind of the same, or I think that seems accurate. You know, there, there were some, a couple other people in Iowa city into weird stuff, like Chris Wiersema, like kind of at that time. Alex body is someone I remember. So there were some, some people kind of also on that same trajectory, but there was a big void there in Iowa city at the time. Um, it was kind of different for me because I was in Cedar falls. So I, the entire time that raccoon was a band, I would drive the two hours like on a Friday and we'd practice like Friday and Saturday. And then I'd come back on Sunday and go to school and just kind of operated that way. So I was like sort of a part of whatever the scene was there, but also adjacent a lot of the time too. So it was kind of interesting at that point for me kind of operating in two different worlds because Cedar Falls stayed like it started to dwindle. Like it stayed kind of in the hardcore tip, but also people started to move away. um, And there just kind of became a little bit less and less going on over time. And I gravitated towards Iowa city And then Uh, Iowa City, like, started to grow again because, you know, like, we started to bring people in and book shows and stuff. And then Chris Wiersema, who Ryan mentioned, like, he was someone that was into weird music and noise and stuff, and he started booking shows. So it just, then it just slowly started to climb, you know. Evan Miller was someone we became friends with who was, like, really close to what we were doing, you know, like, fit in our kind of crew and stuff and, you know. 
it just started started building in the same way, but like we were we were just booking, you know, it, it shifted from, you know, booking USA as a monster to booking like a show with USA as, USA as a monster kites and nautical almanac, you know, all in the same bill or whatever, um, pretty quickly. Can you think of any uh, memorable, you know, tour stories oh or anything like that? Which this is such a it's huge, like infinite, a huge man. topic, but it's infinite, I'll, I'll br- of course. I'll bring up one first, and then Ryan, you should go, and we'll we'll link it back in with some of the other people we've talked about in this podcast. One of the first raccoon tours, or I think it was maybe the first. We had bought this giant Econoline van um, that was really crappy. It was terrible. And when my dad saw it before we left on tour, he was just kind of like, oh, good luck. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And so we, I was actually in this public art exhibition in Baltimore that was put on by Hannah Fushihara, who I talked about earlier, Little Cakes Gallery. And it included like people like Deer Raindrop was in it and like people, Joe Grillo, like people like that from that world. And it was these weirdo public sculptures. And I had actually had my sculpture in the van that I was taking to install at this show oh in Baltimore. My God. <laughs> and so the, as soon as we left Iowa City, we were all kind of like, I remember Andy was driving and it was kind of like, yeah, hopefully we make it. <laughs> and, uh, and that tour had a lot of disastrous things happen. The tour ended with us breaking down in upstate New York at Lake George, the oh, actual man. Lake George and like living in the woods. And we had to like, we had no way home literally. Cause we were too young to rent a car affordably. And we had all this gear anyways. But I remember when we were in Baltimore for a few days and our car broke down, it was breaking down on the way to Baltimore. And like, I ended up on the phone with Hana Fushihara and we talked I was like, I don't know if we're going to make it. Our van's already breaking down. And she's like, just go straight to Baltimore and and call. And this is before I had booked a show for him in Iowa City or anything, I think. She's like, call Twig from Nautical Almanac. I'll give you his number. I think you could stay at their house. I'll call them. And I, you know, I knew their band and stuff, but I was like, we were, we were intimidated, you know. We were like younger and we we're like still a little bit green at that point in a lot of ways. And so we drive to Tarantula Hill, which is their, where they live, this warehouse venue, et cetera, and ended up staying with them. And I remember like ringing the doorbell and like Twig Harper coming downstairs. And it was just like, and it's a really blown out part of Baltimore and stuff. And just like a lot of it was just like amazing, but also really intimidating. And like, they were totally nice and it was amazing. They let us stay there, but we we're also like way younger than them and stuff and way more green to the, like certain aspects of the scene we were starting to operate it in. And so it was just, it was just really interesting and like super memorable. And I just remember like Twig seeming like he was, and I'm tall, I'm like six, four, but him seeming like he was seven foot tall and just like, you know, he just had such like, he's like the king of the weirdos, you know, like in a positive way, but and also in a way that was intimidating. And, um, you know, and they, they're just banned and stuff and their vibe had like this intensity to it. 
And so we ended up staying there and then like I got my stuff to the art show and like we were kind of in Baltimore for a few days and we met Joe Grillo from Deer Raindrop, who I haven't kept in touch with over the years, but you know, we're really into their artwork and thought it was amazing. So that was cool. And then we ended up playing at Tarantula Hill a few days later, which was originally planned. I mean, that was part of the tour. And on that tour was Men Who Can't Love, which is a crew from LA of all these LA younger dudes doing solo noise sets. And I didn't really know about them. I knew about some of the LA stuff. I didn't really know specifically about them because we had known like the wives, no age guys and like had had become familiar with some of the LA stuff percolating at that time. Um, And I think we had, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's other stories around this, but, but at that show, a bunch of the people in men who can't love who had, had dropped off the, tour and they're riding around in this little truck and Jeff Witcher who we've mentioned who's your good friend Jack um was at that show and he was performing and I'll just never forget and his brother Greg also played and then um I think Cole yeah Cole played and then uh Matt Privy Seals played and I remember Jeff's set being like really intense it was super short and really good and I have Polaroids from that show I think of everybody but I remember talking to Jeff, which are outside and I was just like, I had this feeling and I'm not like, I'm not like a, you know, I don't, whatever. I, I just had this feeling like I'm going to know this guy for a long time. There's like something about this where like, I'm going to know this guy for a long time. Like, and Jeff is a, we all know this. Jeff is a really charismatic person. Like he has a lot of charms, but like, you know, you know, you fast forward like a year or something or even less. He's like literally living in my basement, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. in Iowa City, which was wild. But I remember we talked to them and we were all like, they're like, I remember Jeff and his brother talking about how, yeah, man, like we're going to, we're going to go up to New York and we're probably just going to have to find jobs and like stay in the, stay in the truck until we can get enough money to get back to the West coast. (laughs) And then we were, you know, we were in a dissimilar boat that much, but we were like, and we had these plans. We were all, we were going to meet up with those dudes in New York and kick it, you know, because we just, you know, we, we just got along with them right away and we're all around the same age. And I feel like we were all kind of had this similar energy and stuff. Although we were really nice to each other. And those guys, I think were all like kind of brutal to each other. Trying to like, <laughs> like fuck with each other. Every Sabotage each other every day, you know? Um, but anyways, like, I mean, we, you know, we would have our inner band spats. I remember Andy and I would butt, butt heads sometimes, but I feel like it was more because we were like weirdly like actual brothers in a way and had kind of grown up together in a lot of ways. But yeah, we, they are in New York and we never showed up because we broke down in upstate and we're just stranded there. Oh man. And yeah. Had no way home and all this stuff. And, and Ryan, did you almost get busted for panhandling? I tried to sell <laughs> our t-shirts in the park and then the cops came and they, it was like 10 minutes later. It was like a, like a parody where they were just like, oh you can't do this. And I was just God. like, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh. That was after was during a, the during the whole time in Baltimore, like we had tried to get our van fixed, and like Twig just had us take it to like an AutoZone parking lot where these freelance mechanics would work on stuff. So we got it fixed there a little bit, but this van was just faded for the junkyard, you know. And do you remember though, Sean? After that, we 
we got stuck in Baltimore again on the same tour with the van and we got we stayed at the Taliban guy's house. Do you remember that? I and do remember was, that a little bit. It was so hot and they were remodeling it so it was just torn apart and we just sat on their couch sweating. And the reason I really remember it is because we watched Even Dwarves Started Small. And so it was like, <laughs> yes. so it was like driving us insane. As, and the other big thing was they had this dog that was on the most insane diet where they just fed it like raw chicken and garlic. And so this dog oh, was just that? like... Did, 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 did Rick from The New Flesh live there? Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking oh, of. Yeah. And yeah. Rick Weaver. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah, went yeah. on to do Form a Log with like Ren. One of the greatest and, bands yeah, ever. But, like, yeah. It was just this dude, this sweating on this couch in Baltimore in the summer with like no AC watching that movie and like the dog just sitting there breathing garlic. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 I could not eat garlic for like a couple of years. Oh, oh, and then man. we still went on to break down in upstate New York and we were lucky. We called Sean's girlfriend at the time, Sarah and our friend, my roommate, Ryan, also named Ryan. Good and friend of went, ours still. Yeah. Yeah. They went and picked up, I think it was Andy Spore's parents' minivan. So, like, two people went to somebody's parents' house they don't know, borrowed a minivan, and drove like 24 hours straight to yep. pick us up. <sighs> and then and turned, then, around, yeah, and turned around and drew up 24 hours straight back. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, oh, also, oh. meanwhile, Andy and I had to, we were like, okay, well, what do we do with our van? We're like, I guess we could scrap it. So, we find a scrapyard and we go. And it was like, I mean, out of a movie, like just this guy <laughs> on a tractor with like a pistol on his hip. And he's like, he's like, well, I'd love to give you some money for it. But, and then he said some, you know, just like some slurs that shouldn't be repeated. You know what I mean? And he's like, but you know, you can't basically the only thing that's worth any money are the tires. And so he gave us $50. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that you're being completely honest about yeah, all of this. And so like, he gave us 50, oh. 50 bucks and we were just like terrified. Oh. And then also we accidentally left our merch in the van, which was cool too. <laughs> He's like, finally the big, big payback, big cash out for me. Yeah. But that was oh, definitely, man. it was a, it was a moment. That's for sure. You know, so Raccoon kind of dissolved. We're all still good friends, but it just, you know, and that that goes back to, I don't think, I don't think we had like, we had a, we had ambition, like we wanted to be successful, but it was all kind of like amorphous and it wasn't like we were interested in being rock stars or something. It was like, I don't know. So there wasn't, there wasn't like a big ceiling. It was just more whatever. I think we just wanted to keep going or at least I did. It was just always like, yeah, I just want to keep doing stuff i just want to keep making art making music keep playing and just whatever saying yes to yeah and i'm not trying to overly virtue signal with that but i think we just had like our expectations just weren't that big you know and so you know andy moved to la and the band kind of naturally dissolved and like darren was just kind of doing darren stuff and doing solo stuff and i had started doing wet hair solo and I, I just felt like really limited um, 
just doing it by myself and I didn't really enjoy making music just by myself. So it made a lot of sense just to be like, well, I still hang out with Ryan all the time. He's still one of my best friends. I mean, if, if you're in a young band and you're looking for someone to be in a band with, like Ryan Garbus is the type that Ryan Garbus is, is pretty good selection because he's really good at like being chill writing with like any <laughs> pretty much writing with anything that's going to happen he's super low maintenance on where he's sleeping how many clothes he has how how clean he is <laughs> and he just really enjoys playing the drums and playing music so it was like ryan's still here let's just bring ryan into wet hair and so that was like that is just how wet hair got going and then we kind of like through our own taste <clears throat> shifting to evolve and the era evolving you know that band like from the origin of just the two of us till when the band later on with justin t as the bass player like we that a band evolved a lot over the course of a few records but we just kind of just kept doing it like we kept touring we just kept throwing shows in iowa city we kept bringing people through uh we just kept drilling down on all of it and it was just in a lot of ways it was just completely a continuation of what we'd established with with raccoon and then night people it was just a way to like okay we can you know and it it was inspired by all the stuff we're talking about it's like you know you look at wolf eyes and they have hansen you know at the time dillaway was in it and they had hansen and they had american tapes and you know so like all the members of wolf eyes kind of had their own offshoot tape labels and stuff so for us it was like it was a way just to have more merch on the table on tour or be able to turn around to release just a tour only tape to, you know, cause we didn't have money. We were just like trying to get by on these DIY tours. So it was just a way to like have more merch on the, on the table. But also it was like, Oh, we're friends with Evan Miller. He's like this great, like guitarist. He's like a good friend of ours. Like no one's putting out Evan stuff. Let's just put out Evan stuff. And you know, that tapes on the table it gets in the network or whatever the distros at the time and so it was just like that and like really it was pretty collect a you know a collective label i remember kind of maybe andy and i andy spore and i were maybe the helm of it a little bit more and andy kind of had his stuff his he curated a little bit more and then i had my stuff that i curated a little bit more um and that's just how it started and even in its origins it was pretty eclectic because you know like andy had a side project um uh, called Meth Teeth. It was like his jazz group. Um, feel free to check me on any of this stuff, Ryan, because this is yeah, a long time no, ago. No, that's kind of right. I just remember it started to put out our own tape, and then we just kept being like, oh, we can put like a zine out or a DVD, similar, just kind of in the vein of like the paper rad load stuff we liked, where it's like it can contain anything we want, and it became a way to, you know, people we had met, like, like you said, release things for people we met on tour and then just kind of the building that community and getting ourselves deeper in the scene. I feel like too, like it, it's obviously was like a good way to build connections with people to release their tape and get closer. And then they helped us out with shows and we would be able to, yeah, take the tapes out on tour and just well, and do the, that kind of it, thing. At the time, too, you had these really distinct regional hubs, right? And you had these towns and cities that had, like, their own vibe. You know, like, you, you, we met you the first time in St. Louis, and you were really young. But, like, St. Louis, through Ghost Ice and Josh Levi, you know, it had its own, th- in uh, you know, 
the record store and stuff, it had like a it had a vibe, you know. Or we'd go to you know Providence, obviously had a real distinct vibe. Western Mass, with like George and those people had a vibe, and like you know, and like Woods in New York City, like you know, there's this like these hubs where people like the scenes and like had a real distinct vibe and most of those people had like some kind of label or some kind of thing that was like sort of disseminating out of those zones so it kind of made sense for us just to do the same thing we went from just putting out stuff that was like in our orbit to like people were approaching the label and like sending stuff in and we'd meet people that like weren't represented at all so like and there was just some things that like ended up getting kind of popular like like dirty beaches was something like I think I put out maybe his first release. Like no one was really paying attention. It was sort of ignored. And then I put it out and it like people really liked it or like becoming friends with peaking lights when they moved back to the Midwest. Like, you know, just there's certain things like that where like the label kind of like got natural momentum from being around in certain releases. So wet hair was really in ingrained with that. So, yeah, I mean, and you were like super prolific with that. You put out like hundreds of, Tapes and I think records. it was like 250 releases or something. And some of the tapes at a certain point, like, I mean, we remember Andy Spore in the Raccoon era, he he designed like some of the dubbing setup. So we use these, we'd, we'd, we'd find these dual cassette decks and we, in the peak era, there was a stack where it was, I think it was nine or 10 on one side is the A side and nine or 10 on the B side is the B side and they're all chained together. And would duplicate all the tapes that way. Well, I kind of wish looking back, I would have just sent them to national audio or whoever and got them done because you end <laughs> yeah, up with but, errors. And then like, you know, yeah, it's like just three out of the four tapes or like, yeah, but like, yeah. and I would feel bad about that, but it was like, I was, you know, we we're silk screening all the artwork. Like it was all like so this committed to the DIY. It was just like, you know, so like personal in this weird way. guys both eventually ended up moving to St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, yeah, I'm curious, like maybe if you want to talk about like kind of individually what you guys have been up to like artistically and, and you know, everything. Ryan, I'll let you, I'll let you take this one first since I've been kind of. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, wet hair just kind of ended up falling apart and coinciding with maybe challenging times and Sean and I's lives also so sean ended up moving to minneapolis uh with a friend of ours josh who already lived up here and it sort of started an exodus is that that vegan bad boy that's vegan bad boy himself yep (laughs) so he was one of the uh initial poles you know a real magnet um and so although you know wet hair it's like that just kind of ended up the whole band and a few of our other friends ended up moving up here, but wet hair ended. Um, and so I just kind of started living <laughs> basically like chilled out. Cause I was pretty jaded for a while from all the touring and stuff. And, uh, then, uh, was kept recording music always. So I did a bunch of solo music for the first few years that I lived here. And then eventually kind of started wanting to play music again with people and getting back into the drums and so I've done a 
few little projects in the last few years, but in the last year, I've gotten really back into playing again and have been playing with a couple friends casually and then in a band called Tricks. That's kind of like a synth and wire feelies-ish band. That's kind of the gist of it. It, it kind of was a, a sort of natural progression of hitting the 30s and you know life taking over for a minute and uh, but never completely stopped doing anything. But it's it's kind of like in the last two years, COVID refocused it into like being in a really enjoyable pursuit again. You know, like I put out a, a record with Moonglyph in 2020 and like that was a really like a long recording process, like a solo tape and something I was like really proud of, but also kind of felt like a natural button on some of my solo work. And then with the end of COVID and stuff, it felt like a really good transition into just playing again. So kind of like more re-enthused about playing music than I have been in a long time. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say, Ryan, before I give my little spiel? Oh, no. that's about, That last... kind of sums it up for me. Yeah. I think, you know, I reflect on this a lot because it's, you know, it's it's interesting how like say the first 10 years of being in bands and underground music and doing all that stuff like went by f- so fast and but then like the last 10 years where I like sort of became inactive for big stretches of it it seems like less time but also more time somehow it's like it, the whole time frame of it all is like gets really skewed but i think it's like the intensity we went at when we were younger all through the wet hair up until the end of the wet hair era was just, I think was just not sustainable ultimately because of the intensity was just like the pace was just kind of like a lot ultimately. And basically what happened to me is like our last wet hair tour, we went on a tour with merchandise band from Tampa, Florida, friends of ours, you know, we'd gotten to know through the networks of whatever underground music, Dave and Carson, good friends, you know, I'm still consider them friends and keep in touch with Carson for sure. But, you know, they were like, that band was kind of breaking at that point. We're like getting really popular. So we did the tour with them, but I just kind of like, I just kind of honestly was like falling apart at that period of my life. Like I, I didn't really know it yet, but I was just super burnt out in like personal ways. And then also like artistic ways and touring and, and I just kind of like unraveled during that tour. And that tour had like some really kind of amazing moments and some really like personally psychedelic moments and stuff. Um, and also just like the amount of energy I had like put out in touring and with the label and all these things up to that point just couldn't be sustained. And so I just stepped away entirely. Like I basically, you know, moved to St. Paul, got a house, bought a house is really cheap at the time. Um, and just, you know, wound down night people, wet hair, quit. I mean, Ryan and I obviously stayed good friends, kept hanging out. Yeah, I basically just had to take a step away and like refigure out my life and like sort of deal with like becoming more self-aware and like mental health stuff and just just understanding the last 10 years <laughs> sort of too, you know? And so, yeah, that's basically what I did. And I just, you know, I just, I kept collecting records at like a intense pace like that didn't quit and you know basically spent a lot of time sitting in my room like listening to like reggae and dancehall records and from that I was kind of like well I'm kind of feeling like I want to do music again but this is like this music I'm influenced by now I'm really interested in but I'm how, how could I do that appropriately and not in a lame way and not in this shitty appropriation way 
And it sort of sort of came about organically. I met my friend Derek Maxwell. He had been living in New York and he'd moved back. So like he was just like, oh, I want to build this custom sound system. And then started DJing a little bit and stuff. And it eventually just, you know, led to us creating our own productions. And and so it just like just sort of like organically happened for me to end up doing music again. It's also cool, you know, for me, it's like Ryan and I don't make music anymore together, but we're like, I feel like we're just as good of friends as we ever have been. Thanks to Ryan and Sean for joining me to speak about their lives and work. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to 400 Floor wherever you get your podcasts. To hear the raw and uncut version of this episode, plus much more bonus material, you can purchase it at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. 400 Floor is a podcast produced by Nina Protocol, where two musicians pair up to talk about their roots individually and together and reflect on the communities that shaped them. We'll be back in a few weeks with another deep dive. Thanks for listening.